0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people and that means when we read it we are hearing God speak to us. Our passage this morning is from Luke chapter 7 from verses 36 to 50. I'll be reading from the CSB version. I'd encourage you all to follow along in your own Bibles and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town, who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, Has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace.
1: Father, teach us your ways and guide us into all truth. Lord, the burdens on our minds and hearts are many. So we ask that in this moment you might bear them for us. That we might give ourselves to hearing your word and that your spirit might work in the hearts of each of us to transform us into the people you've called us to be. Father, show us Jesus this morning. And in his name we pray. Amen. Friends, one of the things I've noticed about Christians is that there are different uh, levels of enthusiasm that people display when it comes to God. I'm sure you've noticed that too. Uh, Even here at this church, I noticed uh, some people getting quite passionate during the music. Uh, There were some people who had their hands raised, though not very high, I did notice. Uh, There are some Christians I know who get quite emotional during the prayers or during the Bible readings or they feel are heart warmed when they gather with God's people. Uh, I even know as a, as a preacher, uh, some people get very physically into the message. And I can tell you, I appreciate head nodding during the message, uh, agreeable murmurs, you know what I mean? Mmm, mmm, mm. uh, Or even fist pumps, if you want to throw out a fist pump this morning. I will appreciate that. I heard of one church in America where if the preacher gets a bit boring, the women of the church cry out, Help him, Jesus! Help him! And I would prefer if that didn't happen uh, this morning. But what I've also discovered is that just like you can't judge a book by its cover, you can't always tell what's going on on the inside by looking at someone's outside. All that is to say people uh, are different uh, I can still re- remember very vividly one of my good buddies, Ross. We were at church together and uh, it was a, there was a sermon on, on prayer. And I just remember at one point in the service looking over and Ross had just started praying. He bowed his head and I thought, wow, Ross must be really getting into it. And then he, he did one of these ones. He went, because <sighs> he'd fallen asleep. So all that is to say, people are different. Some people are more expressive and emotional Uh, and others are not, right? I have some men in my church who have never had an emotion before other than hunger. Some people cry easily, others bottle it up. Even different cultures, some cultures are quite restrained, and others are quite expressive. Now, I don't actually think one is right or one is wrong. I think it's just different. And so I think it's important that we don't prescribe a particular emotional expression that we mustn't judge a brother or a sister whether they raise their hands during the songs or not, whether they cry during the prayers or not, and particularly that we don't ascribe spiritual value to them because it is not necessarily more spiritual to bop along with the music than it is to stand still. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, because what matters is what happens in your heart, right? I think we kind of know that. You can't always tell what's going on in someone's heart just by looking at their face. However... However, although we should not prescribe a particular emotional expression, I think there should be a healthy emotional response to our Christian life, to our relationship with Jesus and to our posture when we gather together with his people to sing his praises and hear his word and turn to him in prayer, when we contemplate our relationship with God. Now, a more traditional way of saying that is a stirring of our affection. That is a right response to our God and what he has done for us. And though that might manifest itself differently in each of us, we are all called to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. And friends, we are those with a great reason to love. And we're going to discover that as we read this famous story together from Luke chapter 7. So I want you to come with me to the ancient region of Galilee. To the house of Simon the Pharisee and to a dinner party with the movers and shakers of society. This is the first point. If you're taking notes, an unwelcomed gate crasher. An unwelcomed gate crasher. If you've got your Bibles there, just have a look with me. John chapter 7, verse 36 and 37. I'll read it out. You follow along. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Now just stop there for a moment. You might be thinking to yourself that this is a big moment for Jesus. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. Respected. They were treated as dignitaries. Those close to God. They were the holy people. They knew it and so did everyone else. It may have seemed like a great privilege for Jesus to have been invited to the home of one of these important Pharisees. Though it is somewhat surprising, I think. Because up to this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been a massive critic of the religious elites and the ill feelings are mutual. Back in chapter 6, the Pharisees decided to begin a plot to kill Jesus. And yet here Simon the Pharisee extends an olive branch and Jesus is invited to dine with him. But we also read of another who arrives at this party, one who was definitely not invited, nor were they welcome. There arrives a woman. We don't know her name. In fact, we don't know much about her at all. We know that she is looking for Jesus and we know that she is a sinner. Now, everyone's a sinner. We know that from the Bible. We know that from our experience of life, our experience of being human. But this woman comes with a reputation. She is known. Her behavior, her secrets, her shame follow her wherever she goes. Now, I wonder if you know a woman like her. I wonder if you are a woman like her or a man like her. She's the type of woman who'd feel embarrassed to come to church because she might be judged. And she does not belong in the house of a holy man like Simon the Pharisee, see. Well, say what you want about this woman. This girl's got guts, doesn't she? Think how awkward it is to turn up somewhere where you're not welcome. Think how awkward that is. And imagine what it must have been like for her. The judging stares, the accusing eyes, the shocked whispers. Look who it is. How dare she show her face around here? She has with her an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, this is important. An alabaster jar of perfume was an expensive luxury good in the ancient world. Probably imported from India. It would cost the average person about a year's Wages. This is not the cheap David Beckham stuff that I know some of you guys wear. This is the Chanel Number no. 5, the Christian Dior, the Opera Prima. You've got to be impressed that I know about those. But the thing about an alabaster jar is it's for a one-time use. Once you break it open, that's it. This is a treasure that this woman has brought. And she has found something worthy of her treasure. But before we read on, I also want you to realize just how embarrassing this must have been for Simon. That he keeps company with the holy ones, with the important people, with the righteous and the good. And worse still, it's not just that this woman is there at the party, but she is making one heck of a scene. Pick it up with me. Halfway through verse 37. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Uh, you might imagine to yourself that this is not, perhaps, perhaps this is normal behavior in the ancient world. This is just how people acted. It isn't. This is just as awkward back then as it would have been today. Imagine what it would have been like to be a guest at that dinner party. I imagine stunned silence. As the sound of this woman's weeping echoes throughout the house. As the overwhelming scent of perfume carries through the room. She weeps. She washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She dries them with her hair. She kisses them over and over. She anoints them with her expensive perfume, her treasure. This woman who should never have been there. It's a public show of honoring Jesus, isn't it? It's passionate. It's humble. It's emotional. It's intimate. It's all totally inappropriate in such a culture. Though she does not seem to care. So overcome is she with love. I wonder what she's thinking. What would it be like to be in her shoes? What does she believe about Jesus that would cause her to behave in such a way? To ignore the judgmental stares and whispers and to so love and honour him so publicly and so lavishly. And I wonder what Simon is thinking, our respected host, as his dinner party descends into chaos. Well, in fact, we know what he was thinking. We're told exactly that. And this is my second point. What would a prophet know? What would a prophet know? Look at verse 39 with me. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he was a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Having already passed judgment on this woman, he now passes judgment on Jesus, doesn't he? And you understand his logic. It makes sense. If Jesus was really a prophet, really from God, he'd know what sort of a woman this woman was. He'd know what she'd done. He'd know that Simon would never have invited her and that she was a sinner. If Jesus was really a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman near him. He'd have smited her. He'd have driven her out himself. This unholy and immoral woman, get your filthy hands off me. And Simon's conclusion is that Jesus can't possibly be a prophet. He can't possibly be from God. Wait till I tell Jesus who this woman is.
0: Wait till I tell
1: Jesus what she has done. He'll be so embarrassed. But Simon, you see, has made a terrible assumption but it's one I think we make too. See, he assumes the way God treats sinners is the way he treats them and that God is just like him. That God looks down upon them and that he condemns them. Now, we're all guilty of a little judgment from time to time, aren't we? Of being a little judgy. Turning our noses up at the way someone else acts or dresses or speaks. Uh, Even if we don't say anything, we'll think it. We're all guilty of that from time to time, aren't we? And I think religious people are some of the very best when it comes to judging others. And the Pharisees were some of the most religious. And it's kind of understandable. When you're used to thinking of yourself as holier than everyone else, as close to God, as a righteous person, as the sort of person God appreciates, well, then it's very easy to turn your nose up at others. I think it's easy for us to do the same thing. We're the Bible guys, aren't we? Turn our noses up at the world. But Simon is wrong. Jesus does know who this woman is. Jesus does know what she's done. He knows all of it. He even knows what Simon is thinking. You see that? And he knows what God is like. For it was God who sent him seek and save the lost, to offer himself a ransom for sinners to die in their place out of love and out of grace. Simon, for, for all his credentials, all his study, his status, his piety, he doesn't know God. Religious people, like most of us here, take care you do not make the same mistake. To help Simon understand, Jesus tells a parable, a story With a meaning. This is my third point. Who loves more? Who loves more? Look with me, verses 40 through to verse 43. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Jesus leans over to Simon and says, I've got something to tell you. Oh, I wonder, did you notice Jesus, up until this point, hasn't done anything? He hasn't spoken. All he's done is reclined there at that dinner table. Jesus tells him this parable about two men, neither who could repay debt. Can I suggest to you that you will have a very different emotional response to the person who shouts you a coffee, to the person who pays off your mortgage. Can I suggest that? In the parable Jesus tells, neither man could repay his debt. One was small and the other huge. It's the one whose greater debt was forgiven who loves more. So we begin to understand Jesus' lesson, don't we? It's not simply about the woman. It's about Simon too. Look at what Jesus says, verse 44 and 45. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Notice what Jesus does. He contrasts their behavior, doesn't he? Simon, you didn't even give me—you didn't even give Jesus water to wash his own feet. This woman washed her feet, his feet, with her tears. Simon didn't even give Jesus a kiss, a common greeting in the Middle East. This woman hasn't stopped kissing him. Simon didn't anoint Jesus' head with oil, which is a way you honor someone. This woman has anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. Now, why didn't Simon do those nice things? Well, I think Simon thought that Jesus should have been honoured just to have been invited. He should be lucky to be there at all, grateful for the chance to be in such esteemed company. It's honour enough for him to just be in the room. But this woman sees things very differently. She sees one whom she must honour with everything she has. Lavishly and publicly and emotionally, I don't think you could stop her even if you tried. I doubt she could stop herself. Even if she tried, such is her love for Jesus, for this Jesus. Like the one who was forgiven a great debt, she has been forgiven. Verse 47 and 48, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is why she loves Jesus. Jesus has overcome her greatest need. The thing that defined her life, that she was a sinner, Jesus has undone. Jesus overcome it and welcomed her. Her sins are forgiven. He's wiped the slate clean. This is why she's so overcome with joy, with love, It's why she believes Jesus is worthy of such a public show of honour and of such a precious treasure. She's been forgiven much. How can she not love much? Well, Simon, he doesn't think he needs forgiveness. And in fact, he withholds it from this woman. He does not see Jesus as worth celebrating nor worth honouring. And once again, we have the learned religious leader whose job it was to teach people about God, not understanding God or God's heart. But this woman, this outcast, this sinner has grasped it. It's often they who are the ones who do. Can there be any doubt who she loves or how much she loves? She is the one who's been forgiven much. And it's her faith in him that has saved her. I want you to consider for a moment. If this was true, if Jesus could really offer this, if he could take your regrets and your failures and the things you're ashamed of, those things you hope no one ever finds out about, and he could take them all away and wipe the slate clean. Wouldn't that be wonderful? wouldn't the right response to that person be to love? Point number four. My final point, saving faith. The controversy in this passage is still around Jesus' identity. Look with me, verse 49 and 50. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Just as Simon questioned Jesus' identity, now those who are watching question it too. And their question's a fair one. Who is this man who can forgive sins? Now, friend, if I ever attempt to forgive your sins, I want you to be very suspicious of me because I can't do anything about them. But I do know someone who can. God in human flesh can. The Messiah, the Lord, he can forgive. In fact, he's the only one who can. It was the reason he came into this world and this unnamed sinful woman got it. Simon's still figuring it out. And I wonder about you. Which I guess is really the question I want to ask you today. Do you love much or do you love little? I'd like to tell you that I feel a deep love, gratitude and delight towards God all the time. But actually, I often feel cold and indifferent. Jesus gets drowned out amidst all the competing voices and concerns of life. And I wonder if it's because I don't quite realize the depth of forgiveness that has been extended to me. How about you? Is Jesus worthy of your honor? Is Jesus worthy of a little embarrassment? Is Jesus worthy of your treasure? This woman answers yes. And she loved much. If you're a sinner too, the sort of person that carries around a reputation or the burden of secret shame and failure, then take heart. Jesus knows, he knows what you've done, he knows all of it and he's come to forgive it all. If you're not a a Christian here today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's it's great that you're here, you're most welcome. Uh, You may have all sorts of objections to the Christian message, all sorts of uh, philosophical thoughts but I think in the end it probably boils down to one thing, you don't love Jesus because you've no need for a saviour or forgiveness. I wonder am I right? if you're someone who struggles to love Jesus much, first grasp his love for you and your need for his forgiveness. Because church, we are not those who are forgiven little. I don't know where they are, but they're not here. We mustn't be those who love little either. And I guess for you, cross and crown, It'll be up to you to decide what sort of church you'll be. Will you be a Simon the Pharisee church of proper, respectable, religious types looking down on the world around you? Or you could be a hospital for sinners, which I think is a Jesus church. That might mean less reputable people attending. But when they do, they'll fit right in with the rest of us. For we are those who love much. And it's from Jesus' love for us that our affections are stirred, that our souls rejoice and our spirits soar, that drives our obedience of Jesus, the one who said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, John 14. And that our praise and our worship come from. I don't really care if you raise your hands during singing, and I'm not sure God does either. But you cannot call yourself a church if you don't love Jesus. And you've got such a great reason to love. For those of us like me whose emotions are lagging a little behind the truth that we believe, perhaps we need to re-grasp those truths again. And be reminded of the grace and of the love that was shown to us because we are not those who were forgiven little. And we have a great reason to love. Let me pray. Father, forgive us for the times when we feel a cold indifference towards you. Remind us of your great love for us, that we might reflect this sinful woman rather than this Pharisee. Lord, rekindle our affections for Christ. Fill us with joy and thankfulness and love. May we be those who love much, for we are those who have forgiven much. In Jesus' name we pray.